Andrew Giuliani wants to be the next governor of New York. Andrew Giuliani. I shouldn't fumble your last name because that's key here, Andrew. It's not that Andrew. On the Red Apple Podcast Network, here's Andrew Giuliani. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Not That Andrew. It's great to see you again. And today we have an incredibly special guest, a great friend of mine, uh, Jenna Ellis, who is a former counselor to President Trump. She also has her own nationally syndicated radio show on the American Family Radio Network. Uh, So without any further ado, Jenna Ellis. Jenna, how are you doing today? Great to join you, my friend. It's been too long since we've uh, done a podcast and radio and, and all of that. So I, I miss the uh, the days in the, the Trump admin and campaign. Absolutely. And, and normally you're the one asking me the question. So now I get to return the favor to you over here. So. <laughs> I promise I'll be friendlier than MSNBC and CNN. I can't promise how much friendlier, but I'll be friendlier. So they set a low bar. They really do, though. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So let me start off, Jenna. You know, when I think about kind of how you and I really got got acquainted, it was uh, the days after the uh, November 3rd in 2020 and after the election and uh, everything that you obviously did, I think, to to fight for truth. Um, I know there are some things you can say, some things you can't say, but walk me from your perspective uh, through the, the days after Election Day in November of 2020 and in November and December. Yeah, well, um, you know, that it, it was such a wild time. I mean, I look back on those three months and think, um, you know, that was genuinely probably and hopefully um, the most uh, wild time of my life that I'll ever experience, um, you know, with a lot of media scrutiny, um, you know, a lot of things going on, a lot of unknowns, um, you know, and, and a lot of, as you said, you know, just fighting for truth. I mean, you know, while the mainstream media will spin it all kinds of different ways, um, you know, the goal, at least of the lawyers, was to get to the truth and to make sure that every legal vote counted and counted fairly. And, you know, people say that's a talking point, whatever, but, you know, it's, it's simple emphasizing the goal into a tweetable format to say that, you know, this wasn't about overturning anything or, you know, producing any sort of, um, you know, unfair outcome. It was actually to make sure that the, the game itself of the election was played fairly and administered fairly. And so, I mean, I still believe that the election was irredeemably compromised. There were so many ways that the executive um, administrations and the election officials violated uh, various laws among, you know, all the several states. And um, and it led to, uh, to, to chaos, really. And I'm frankly really disappointed looking back that the judicial branch failed in almost all instances to hear the claims from the Trump campaign on the merits. And, you know, there, and there were a ton of other people who had other theories and other um, even claims in court cases. And, you know, those aren't attributable to the campaign. But what the campaign and what you and I actually worked on, what um, those lawsuits by other lawyers, and I don't, and you and I are both lawyers, and I don't think you or I were actually attorneys of record in any of those cases. That wasn't our role or responsibility. Local lawyers did all of that work. And, and really, um, the, those lawsuits, though, were never genuinely heard on the merits. I mean, there were a couple of hearings here and there and, you know, a couple of isolated exceptions to that. But by and large, you know, all of these got kicked out based on standing and saying, you know, for some reason, uh, President Trump as a candidate for 
reelection uh, couldn't challenge these these results and these claims, whether it was standing, it was claim preclusion, like, you know, you should have brought this months ago. And we can talk about RNC lawyers and their failures to do some of that, um, campaign lawyers even. But then ultimately you have this this case, uh, Texas versus Pennsylvania, that was um, filed by uh, the attorney general and a couple of other attorneys general. And, and I believe it was a total of 19 states that either signed on to this lawsuit, filed um, amicus brief, but um, were challenging how the electoral system um, was administered in the 2020 election. And from my perspective, the most disappointing thing was that the Supreme Court, for whatever reason, whether it was political, lack of courage, you know, whatever whatever the motivation there was, um, did not fulfill, in my opinion, their Article Three obligation, uh, as I view the Constitution, that when a state sues another state, you have original jurisdiction in the Supreme Court. And this was the most important case going on in the country at the time. And even if the Supreme Court had ultimately held against Trump, the country would have had finality. We would have had um, an arbitration through the system, through the justice system, and fulfilling the constitutionally protected right in our First Amendment to petition the government for redress of grievances. And we would have had had a result, and we would have had an, an arbiter that stepped in and actually heard the case and decided. I mean, that's what happened in Bush v. Gore, and you didn't see this, you know, two years of aftermath of this political conversation because on both sides, I feel like both sides feel like there's not a resolution to this, and rightly so, because our justice system and our Supreme Court failed. Um, so, so that was the biggest takeaway for me looking back, you know, now two years later, um, to see that I really genuinely wish that the Supreme Court had fulfilled their obligation and had rendered an opinion. And as Justice Thomas in the aftermath so well put, uh, why is election integrity and election law under this kind of shroud of a, of a cloud of darkness, I think was his characterization, uh, that can't be arbitrated? And we just have to leave this up to you know other vague interpretations and standards moving forward. That's not good for the country. It certainly was not good for President Trump. It's not even good for Joe Biden. Who you know, a lot of people are you know are saying that he's an installed president instead of a duly elected one, and I think it was actually a disservice to him as well. So, so I hope that as we move forward in election integrity issues, um, judges will have more courage to address these things that that may seem political, but legally and constitutionally speaking, they are not political questions. They are justiciable issues, and they need to be heard on the merits. Well, to that point, and you did a great job looking back at this and now kind of touching on the moving forward in 2024 and in future elections, do you have more faith or less faith moving forward that uh, our elections are not going to be, as you said before, irredeemably compromised? That's the the million dollar question. And I think it genuinely depends on what state and what administer we're talking about, because a lot of work has been done in the last two years to secure free and fair elections to make sure that everybody plays by the rules Um, when you have, you know, a, a two professional sports teams that all, you know, that both come to a baseball game and you have an umpire, the umpire should make everybody play by the same rules. That's how you enter the game. Um, So in some states, um, like Florida, for example, a lot of work was done after and in the aftermath of the 2000 election, um, Bush v. Gore, and they're, they're actually, you know, counting their ballots. And we looked at the midterms and they declared everything was done on election night. Imagine that. What an amazing concept. (laughs) 
right? <laughs> but then you look at Arizona and all of what's still going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that I'm I'm very concerned that the uh, the governor and AG races are going to to go down in history similarly to President Trump's election, that everybody's not really going to have a, a satisfactory resolution to genuinely who was elected because there are so many outstanding questions. So I think it's incumbent upon everyone, regardless of your political perspective, even if you're Democrats, you should want to have finality. But I think the problem with that, you know, are um, is, is because the Democrats just want the outcome they prefer, and they don't really care how they get there. But for conservatives and people who care about the rule of law, I think we're making a lot of headway, but there's still a lot more work to be done. Yeah, and you mentioned it'll depend on the state. And, and just right off the top of my head, three, let's call them problem states from 2020, pop right to mind is looking and saying, well, I don't know if they've fixed. It seems like, if anything, we might have more issues. Arizona, as you mentioned, Pennsylvania, uh, and Wisconsin, who just saw the Supreme Court swing 4-3 now down. Democrat to Republican. Uh, I don't know if those issues have been solved. And then in Pennsylvania, you've seen the, and I know you spent a lot of time working on the gubernatorial race in Pennsylvania with uh, somebody who's become a good friend of both of us, Doug Mastriano. But it seems like these states, if anyway, have swung more left, whether it be in their judiciary like Wisconsin or in Pennsylvania, uh, in terms of the actual guy who is administering the elections is now the governor of Pennsylvania. Right. And and this is so frustrating, I think, that Republicans tend to ask and answer the question of, you know, what happens about election integrity? Can we figure this out before 2024? And yet they don't see that the answer to that question that will ultimately happen on election night is already being answered mm-hmm. in some instances when we didn't hear really anything nationally and um, even within the state of Wisconsin, how out that the uh, the Democrat leaning um, and you know in, in my opinion far left liberal yeah. who is now on the Supreme Court shifted that balance um, you know they don't re- run Republican or Democrat because supposedly they're supposed to be unbiased but we all know how that works yeah. in the <laughs> we're, um, we're so, seeing yeah, I'm yeah. sitting in Manhattan right now about two miles away from Alvin Bragg's office so I'm sure he's uh, nonpartisan so. Oh, of course. You know, everything is on the up and up when, you know, I mean, and this is the same Democrats, by the way, who claim that our system is systemically racist and you will never get a fair hearing and we need to tear down the entire institution. But when it comes to Alvin Bragg and Donald Trump, somehow everything's free and fair. Don't question that. This is a perfectly ethical prosecution, you know, and it's all on the up and up. Wink, wink, nod, nod, trust us. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous how they change the rules for their own preferred political outcomes. But in Wisconsin, um, there, there was it was, I think, like 10 to 1 outspent the liberal candidate and this shifted the balance. And so inevitably, when people ask in 2024 these questions of election integrity, we can then go back and look at the seminal moment of this election. And so what I would challenge Republicans and conservatives to do, don't just wait until Election Day. Look at these really important races and legislation that is going to shape and impact how elections are administered and how they're arbitrated now. Do it now while we still have time. You know, Jenna, to your point, to that point and a point that you made earlier, when I think about what happened on November 3rd, 2020, all that was set up by what ended up happening in the states in April and May of 2020. And it put the Trump team at at a terrible disadvantage because you had these things that were changed in these problem states, as as I've called them, that uh, that ultimately affected uh, the outcome and made it 
irredeemably compromised. By the way, I think that's a perfect way to describe it. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I truly believe that the failure of the of the RNC and the Trump campaign's lawyers who were responsible for Election Day operations and election lawyering, um, you know, and you and I aren't substantively, you know, election lawyers. That wasn't my role and responsibility leading up to the election. And, you know, you were in the administration at that point in time. You know, these people who who that was their responsibility and their job um, had this mindset that, you know, oh, well, Trump will win in a landslide. It's fine. We don't really need to do much about it. And they had this very lackadaisical attitude. And instead of paying, you know, the million or two, uh, you know, uh, dollar retainer to have Jones Day lawyers be on the ground during the election and having a true, um, you know, lawyers for Trump apparatus and operation and challenging some of these things ahead of time, um, there was a lot that wasn't challenged that ultimately made the issues that the campaign identified and litigated. Um, some of them genuinely were not possible to correct because they didn't fight them when the time was right, which was before the election. Right. And a lot of people, I think, are going to be once, you know, more of all of this comes out. And I think that um, it should, you know, and, and Brad Parscal, who was the Trump campaign manager at the time and then ultimately was removed in, um, I believe, around May of 2020 and Bill Stepien came in. Um, Brad Parscal said very publicly how he had a plan that was funded by about three and a half million dollars to have lawyers to fight this stuff that was defunded and discarded by Bill Stepien. And so those types of questions haven't really been asked of, of people in the campaign that were responsible for this. And, and all of the scrutiny has just been on the post-election mm -hmm. challenges. But I think we need to go back further than that if we really want to do an, a fair and complete autopsy of the entire campaign. Well, why do you think Stepien and, and, and Justin Clark, why do you think they did choose to defund that? I mean, do you think that was just uh, complete ignorance, let's say, or do you think there was actually something more at play there? Um, you know, th this is just my opinion. I haven't asked them. So, you know, they haven't told me anything, um, you know, on or off the record. But, you know, people know that, that Justin Clark uh, was actually one of Al Gore's attorneys. Um, you know, so this this kind of and so you kind of want to ask the question, well, what was he doing in in the Trump campaign? And, you know, what's what's going on there? Um, and, you know, and he was, at least according to reports, part of the the whole Bush v. Gore thing. You know, he's done election day operations. And so they should know how this works. And so was it just total dereliction? Was there a broader strategy? Was it just to, um, you know, pocket the money themselves? I mean, you know, there, there are a wide variety of, of speculative motivations, but I think that the question should be put to them and asked. And I think if you want to have a, uh, if the American people who care sincerely about election integrity, especially Trump supporters who got out and voted for him, want to find a villain in the story, um, my view is that it's Bill Steffi and Justin Clark and Justin Reamer, on, um, who is the head counsel or general counsel of the RNC, that made these decisions. And we should all know the answers publicly to why they did this. I'd yeah. still love to know. You know, I, I just want to point out to, um, you know, for anybody who will ever 
question your loyalty in any kind of way, I can tell you that I remember uh, a week after the election in uh, in November of 2020, and I remember how empty the campaign office was, how many people that have, you know, thumped their chest and still might be thumping their chest that they are loyal to Trump, uh, that they'll that they'll always defend him. They were gone. They were looking for their next job or they were part of a fundraising apparatus trying to bring in money for the legal defense, which didn't necessarily go to legal defense. What I can tell you is you were there every hour. I mean, basically every single waking and and uh, and for most people, non-waking hour of the day and night uh, for two and a half months. Well, thank you. And I, I really appreciate that because, you know, people like to, for their own purposes, whether it's nefarious or just maybe a coping mechanism, uh, want to find someone to blame or want to rewrite history or, you know, in the in the new role and responsibilities that, that people have and they move on, um, you know, from various campaign or client roles, um, you know, they, they try to reshape things. And so, you know, for the people who would question that, um, and, and to me in particular, you know, I, I was very much one of the prominent faces of the post-election challenges. And so was so much more prominently in the mind of people when they think of that time. But that doesn't mean at all that, you know, it was my call and um, and responsibility to, you know, to, to be the attorney of record in any of these cases. You know, that wasn't my role and responsibility. And so, you know, and, and yet there's kind of this, this narrative out there that, um, you know, it was my responsibility alone to convince the entire federal and state judiciary to, you know, take up these cases. And somehow I failed. And now, you know, I'm a CIA operative, deep swamp rhino that intentionally sabotaged my own client. I mean, you know, all of this is is total just cope and thieves by people who I think some with nefarious motives, some just just so frustrated and rightly so. But what I can tell you is that every single client I've ever represented, I have represented them to the best of my ability. I mean, we're all human. We all, um, you know, have limited capacity to, to do what we can. And we also aren't responsible as advocates. Um, we don't have the power to to tell a judge or to even, you know, have, have, we don't have power over what judges do and how they, how they respond and, you know, or, or legislators or any of this. And so, um, you know, and, and I understand all of that, but at the same time, um, you know, my my role and client work for Donald Trump ended with the conclusion of the aftermath of the 2020 election. But, you know, he and I still remain good friends. He was just telling me the other day that, you know, you'll always be my friend, Jenna. And, you know, I, I always appreciate that. And, um, you know, I love him dearly um, as a person, as a friend and as a, as a former client. So I really appreciate that from you, too, because, you know, your family, um, I, I always call you that's my, my New York Italian family, um, you and your dad, Rudy. I, you know, I love and respect um, your family so much and really look back on our time serving President Trump as, um, you know, one of the most challenging, certainly, but also um, some of the most fun times that I've ever had. And, and I wouldn't I wouldn't change that. I, I would never go back and say, well, just because, you know, the outcome wasn't what we advocated for, then, you know, somehow it wasn't worth it. Well, no, I mean, always standing up for the truth and for what's right, that's always worth it. Well, you're always welcome to our New York Italian family, Jenna, and we, we feel the same way. So, you know, anytime you want to come to New York, we'll make sure you have a good Italian meal here, as that's what family does here uh, in New York. But, you know, looking forward here into election 2024, you actually have, I think, and, and I think this has really been a good strategy, and I heard it from Laura Trump first, believe it or not. She actually, very early on, before I think even uh, President Trump announced his campaign for 24, she was complimenting 
documentary of DeSantis. And her tack was, you know, DeSantis is doing a good job in Florida. I want him to stay governor of Florida for four more years. I'm, I'm here. It's an important state. I want him to stay. President Trump has done this before. I want him to, to do that. I th always thought that was an effective strategy. I voiced that one time to President Trump. He's decided to go a different way, and, and that's kind of his plan on it. I've said that, that look, I'm supporting President Trump, but I'm not going to knock Ron DeSantis, because I think he's done a spectacular job in Florida. It seems like that you've had a similar, uh, I know it's a little bit different than than that in terms of what I'm saying, but uh, you've been very complimentary of Ron DeSantis. And I know that that has uh, made some people question your loyalty, uh, which I find to be absurd. You, It's not a, uh, a one-off choice where, you know, if DeSantis is doing uh, a good job, then you're, you know, anti-Trump or vice versa. Right. And I think you are taking the principled approach by saying, I support President Trump for re-election, but I'm not going to trash Ron DeSantis unfairly. Now, if we have legitimate criticisms, and I've actually ironically been been castigated in media for uh, for saying that I think that Ron DeSantis has been over the line on how he's dealt with Disney's constitutionally protected right to freedom of speech and political engagement. Uh, and I took a lot of heat for that, but it was a principled approach. So mm -hmm. I have openly criticized Ron DeSantis when I disagree with him, and I'll continue to do that. Mm -hmm. And, and so this whole question of loyalty, I think that people need to remember and recognize that there's a huge difference between championing a, a political candidate that you prefer and also someone who has an obligation and a role and responsibility to only champion the message that they prefer and you speak on their behalf versus uh, people who now I, I don't work for President Trump. And so I don't have to engage in the same campaign strategies that I don't particularly find helpful. So, I mean, so for example, if I was working for the campaign now, um, then there would be content and things that they may ask me to amplify that I don't necessarily um, agree with, but that's the strategy of the overall campaign. And I have likewise told, uh, told President Trump even very recently that, you know, I'm with you, Andrew, uh, that I think if, you know, he, he took the approach to say, you know, why would Governor DeSantis want to leave the state of Florida let him have, you know, four more years, even maybe even go so far as to say, I'll offer to endorse you in 2028. But, you know, stay out of this one, this, you know, this, I'm the nominee and, and maybe try to broker a deal that way. I don't know if that'd be effective for DeSantis not entering the race, but I think it would actually be a more principled approach for Trump and would not be as off-putting to people who, until you know, Trump started trashing him five minutes ago. Everybody was really a champion of what DeSantis was doing in Florida. So I find it personally unprincipled and not something that I'm willing to participate in on just speaking on my own behalf now and, and as a media contributor to, to saying that I don't like him or that he's a neocon and he's a rhino and he's all, you know, these other things. Mm -hmm. When five minutes ago, everybody was saying he's the best Republican governor in the nation. So I, I think that President Trump would do better and the campaign would do better to not take that approach. So I'm with you and Laura in that one. And I haven't made any endorsements. And the reason for that is because I'm now, my radio show is a part of a Christian nonprofit. And so we don't make endorsements. And so, so I have chosen to simply honor that and not even do anything in my personal capacity. 
But I love and support Trump, and I also am a huge fan of Ron DeSantis. Well, I'll tell you, you know, it, for me, it came from a very simple fact. Some of the people that I know that were not involved in anything with the Trump campaign, they didn't work in the White House like me, they were just massive Trump fans. The thing that turned off more people was when he started criticizing DeSantis because they saw the job that he was doing in Florida. And it's a little bit different than in 2016, and I've kind of took it took the approach this way. In 2016, Jeb wasn't part of the Trump tree, let's call it. Neither was Rubio. You know, n- none of the people that he ran against. Lindsey Graham was not part of the Trump tree. But Trump had endorsed Ron DeSantis to be the governor of Florida, which meant that he looked and he said, this is a guy who I believe and I'm willing to put my name behind. And it turned out to be a spectacular endorsement with, with what happened. President Trump moved his residence down to Florida. Look, not all of that is because of Ron DeSantis, but I think a lot of the policies that we've seen post-COVID where he's been able to push some of these buttons, which I think, let's say, uh, look, I was just looking at my daughter, Grace, over here. When I think about the education that she would get in New York versus a state like Florida, it's very appealing to go down to a state like Florida and say, you know what? Universal school vouchers sounds pretty darn good. I know the governor's office had a lot to do with that down there. Yeah. And 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 I think that's right. And this is where a lot of people on media and who are talking about these, you know, even around the dinner table are pointing out what they consider, and I would I would agree with this position, um, hypocrisy of the people who have supported DeSantis and in all of those endeavors and are now trying to paint a very different picture just because he may and probably will run against President Trump, what I think would be so much more effective for President Trump in the campaign is to say, listen, we're responsible for this guy, at least in part. You know, he profited from my endorsement um, and he is taking Florida, you know, to the next level. And that's all great. And and all of those policies are things that I've been doing and, you know, and run on his record because the, the issue that's so different in 2024 versus 2016 is that Trump is not an outsider anymore. I mean, he was the head of the Republican Party as the incumbent in office. And to, so to say that he's an outsider and, you know, he doesn't have all of these relationships now with, you know, all of these people that you just mentioned. Well, you know, he has a record that he has to run on, you know, both um, really good and, you know, some that we could say he, he could have done better. And so um, so I don't think that the campaign for people who are looking at this with an open mind, if there are any of those people left in, in the country, but I think there are, then he needs to take the approach in the primary to build on and, and actually take credit in some sense for what DeSantis is doing. I mean, look, you know, DeSantis got widely nationally applauded last week when he signed the heartbeat legislation to restrict abortions and save unborn babies in the state of Florida. President Trump should be out there saying, yeah, and you know how you got to sign that legislation? Because I put three justices on the Supreme Court with that pledge when I ran in 2016 that I would nominate people that are pro-life, and I fulfilled that promise. So well done, DeSantis. Well done, other Republican governors. And that was because of me, and I'm going to do it again. That, to me, is a much more effective message you know, than all of this desanctimonious whatever. Yeah, and I think, you know, we mentioned very earlier on a couple of the people uh, that who are still, you know, working with with the Trump team over here uh, that I think were some of the major causes with what we saw in the states there. You mentioned Step, you mentioned Clark. They're still around. They're still still doing stuff. Yeah. 
for Trump 2024. And to me, it's it's one of the biggest things where I really hope in this year leading up to uh, election year, let's say in 2023, something something snaps in his mind and says, you know what? These are the guys that led me down the wrong path in 2020. We need to do something about this, because if not, then it's going to be a, a similar a similar result. Well, from your lips to Trump's ears on that one, because I think that's the big question that, you know, kind of the the original, uh, you know, MAGA warriors. And I would um, I would humbly include you and I in that category um, who were there and who have advocated for him and who've seen, you know, we we had blood, sweat and tears on, on all of this. And to see that those types of people are still around him. And there's a lot of um, I would characterize it as very toxic people around him still feeding these kinds of of, uh, of things and not making great decisions, I think it's problematic. And you're also seeing a lot of people who were on the 2016 and or 2020 that have chosen not to go back uh, to the campaign and have not chosen to be part of 2024. And that's, that's a red flag in terms of the the internals and who is still around him and who's still running or is newly running operations. And, you know, talking about um, the campaign and kind of, you know, the, the messaging, you're seeing a lot of these, whether they're paid influencers or people that, you know, Trump has just acknowledged and thanked for their services. Um, you know, some of these people that are pushing out really vile content. I mean, I was the target of, you know, a really horrible sexual harassment campaign, um, you know, that was aggregated over the last week. And then also Erin Perini, who um, she's now working for the DeSantis PAC. So that makes her a traitor in their eyes, of course, where she's just, you know, she's a political communications person that, you know, she she worked for Ted Cruz in the interim as his comms director. She's going to job. She's doing her job. And she doesn't deserve to be targeted and have these kinds of vile threats made against her just for doing her job. That doesn't mean that when she was working for the Trump campaign, she wasn't doing that to the best of her ability. She just, people move on and they get other jobs. I mean, I find it so strange that the MAGA world philosophy is somehow, if you are in Trump world, you can never leave. Or if you decide to go get another job, then that makes you a traitor. We're in no other line of work ever. Do you see these kinds of, um, you know, loyalty questions? I mean, we do have non-compete clauses that say, you know, hey, you can't basically benefit from your role in the same, you know, sphere. But there are legal limits to that, as you and I, you know, well know. Mm -hmm. And and you know, even just in my legal work, like I was a prosecutor, and then you know, when I left that office, um, then I went and became a defense attorney. And I went back against my former colleagues and won cases against them. And nobody questioned, you know, loyal hearing. That's just, that's part for the course. People do that all the time. Well, look, I don't care if you've sacrificed, if you've not. And I can tell the world here that you have sacrificed, I think, more than people even realize. Uh, I saw it with my own two eyes. And you put more on the line, so loyal to uh, the cause more than anything. There's nobody that should have to deal with any type of of a sexual harassment, you know, social media push or anything like that. Uh, anybody, um, certainly not somebody who uh, I would say, like I said, uh, laid it all on the line for um, for our country more than anything, and not for an individual, for our country and for our constitution. Thank you, and and I genuinely appreciate that, and I saw that as well with uh, with Rudy, with you, and you know, so many other people that truly um, faithfully gave a lot and served because um, you know we were, we were in this 
because we believed in um, in President Trump and his accomplishments. You know, and I still I, I love what he can and and will do for this country if he's reelected. Um, but I and I also think that it's a it's great that we have a wide bench and we have fighters like Ron DeSantis. We have, um, you know, fighters across the country in various Republican roles. This is a good thing that we're raising up more people that are um, similar in policy to President Trump. Yeah. And here's why I think the messaging, you know, does not need to be negative against DeSantis, because everybody I've spoke to, whether or not they are Trump in 24 or if they want somebody else in 24, they want DeSantis to take a run at this at some point in the next couple of cycles. They see that. And so they don't want to tear tear a guy down who's in his you know early to mid 40s or so who could be the future. Uh, and they look at one of as one of Trump's real accomplishments as as an as an acolyte, somebody he can really you know look up to and say, hey, look, I, I had the foresight to endorse this guy, to help this guy. Uh, That's the kind of things I can put teams together like this. That's why I should be elected again. Yeah, 100 percent. And I I, you and I are totally in agreement on that. And, you know, from what I'm seeing on a lot of these, um, you know, so-called Trump influencers is their messaging is just really horrible um, that I think just for their own personal brand is going to come back and bite them to to try to tear down and and trash Ron DeSantis for, you know, some really, really great uh, conservative work. And I hope that moving forward, we don't um, direct as much fire at each other as we do the true enemy, which are the people that want to tear down our government and our institutions and our country, and those would be the Democrats. And so I think we need to train our fire on them and uh, and to say, you know, and I've, I've publicly said whoever wins the Republican nomination, that's who I'm voting for. And whether that's Trump, it's DeSantis, it's someone else. Um, and I really wish that everyone involved would have more of that framework. And, you know, there's, there's of course, going to be some mudslinging and some um, and, and fair argument as far as who's the best person for the job. But I really wish it would actually focus on who is the best person, even if we all can agree on you know, what what the goal is. We just have to choose our fighter. Yeah. Well, Jenna, look, it, it is uh, it's always an honor getting to spend a little bit of time with you. I can't wait to see you again in person here, hopefully soon. But thank you for for all the work that you've done for our country, for being the the fighter that you are. I know that uh, I know we'll have many, many battles together in the future. And uh, and uh, more than anything, I'm honored to call you a friend. Well, thank you, Andrew. That really means a lot to me, and especially, you know, at this moment um, in our time. I can also say for you, you have uh, done this by example, and and everything we're talking about in the, you know, Trump versus DeSantis and everybody else debate, you have led by example in your own race um, for governor of the state of New York, because you did not lead a campaign that was, you know, trashing your opponents. It was very principled. Um, I did endorse you then. Um, I wasn't working for the nonprofit at that point. Helped your campaign. I was very honored to do so. And then when Lee Zeldin won the nomination, you came out and endorsed him. And I thought that was so principled and it shows the character um, of who you are as a candidate, as a, you know, as, as a believer, you know, as, as someone who is very uh, God and country principled. And I genuinely respect that. And I think that that type of stand needs to be the model moving forward. 
You know, Jenna, I think probably for me it's because I grew up in politics, so I've seen all this, you know, not with not not as much with social media, obviously, when I grew up as it didn't exist, but, I, you know, you see the mudslinging and you see the, the power moves where people, for the first time that they get close to power, it's this intoxicating feel and sometimes you're not thinking straight, that, that for me, it's it, it comes down to a very simple thing. I've seen it all. I've seen people go up. I've seen people come down. I've seen them, you know, close to power. I've seen them exiled. I've seen this. And there's one thing that matters to me. Who is going to help make our country a better place for my daughter moving forward? That's the only question that I ask when it comes to anything. And guess what? If there is, let's say, a Democrat that comes with an idea that says, hey, you know what? That might actually be better for my daughter. I would listen to that person. I'd have a conversation with that person. I've yet to see an idea like that in the last couple of years, but that's how open-minded I am to this. I want to make sure that we're leaving a better country for our kids. And it might sound cliche, but it really is true. I want to better country for our kids than was handed to us. Oh, a hundred percent. And that's such a, a great goal. And I think um, that really, we need to be more focused on the good of the country and uh, being loyal to God and country first than any particular politician, whether that's Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, anyone else. And I'm confident that if either Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis were to be our next president in 2024, both of them would accomplish that goal way better than any other Democrats. So, you know, th- they can they can fight it out in the primary, but do so with, you know, with the goal trained on making our country better. And, you know, for me, what what I always look at is, am I genuinely championing um, the Great Commission in Scripture, which is to go into the world and speak the truth of Christ and ultimately win hearts and minds to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so why do we then participate in politics or law or any of this other kind of, you know, dirty stuff? Well, so that we can fulfill the Great Commission. We can make uh, life good for the next generation in the ways that you just described, because then we can still have our first freedoms, which is speaking together about truth and not having all of these false ideologies, this transgender nonsense, the CRT and the Marxism and, you know, all of this compelled speech like the cake bakers and the web designers. Politics matters because it's advocating for truth in society. And we should not lose sight of that deeper and more rich goal if we are just hyper-focused on partisan politics and the personalities. Well said, Jenna. Where can everybody find The Jenna Ellis Show? Thank you. You can find uh, The Jenna Ellis Show at thejennaellisshow.com and on the Salem Podcast Network. And you can find Jenna Ellis in the morning on uh, the American Family Radio Network. That's at AFR.net. We have local terrestrial radio stations where you can listen online or on the app at AFR.net. And then find me on social media, um, all platforms at Jenna Ellis, E-S-U for Esquire. Because, yes, sorry, haters and losers, I am still a licensed attorney. And in fully in good state of Colorado, and I'm very grateful for that. Well, to uh, a fighter, a great American, and a true friend, Jenna, thank you for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, come back next week for Not That Andrew. We'll see you then. <laughs>